case file number 3.7. Cobalt strikes back. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector in the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So, Ymir, I know that you've talked about a little bit about Kali Linux uh, in the past, and you did some of some stuff with that when you were studying. Yeah. Have you ever used Metasploit? Uh, yeah, yeah. We used um, Metasploit. In fact, we used, um, I think the only thing we used in Metasploit uh, during college is the one they always show you, which is like MS, uh, what is it, 23? So it's the SMB overflow um, for Windows XP. Okay, so the buff overflow packaged installer kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 exactly. Did you ever use their command and control system, the the callback shell mass mechanisms, Metterpret or anything like that? Um, I played around with a little, like I know um, part of Kali, there was one tool, there's probably like a new version of it because this was years ago. Mm -hmm. um, there was one for like writing embedded um, reverse shells into PDFs. And so I remember like playing around with that and giving like some of my fellow students PDF files to open. Oh, right. And then Yeah, you did mention that, uh, that, that you had played around with that. Yeah. Well, today we're talking about Cobalt Strike, which is basically that kind of stuff, the commercialized version of it. Oh, okay. And the fact that it's been used in a lot of malware. <laughs> anyway, so back in 2012, Cobalt Strike was released by, by Help Systems as kind of a commercial competitor to Metasploit, doing some things that were seen as lacking in the open source implementation. And at that point in time, this was well before Metasploit got bought by Rapid7. Mm. So there wasn't really a pro version at this point. Oh, okay. And in about 2015, they released Cobalt Strike 3 with its adversary emulation platform. And this is what basically does the reverse shell command and control stuff. Uh, that we that we were just talking about mm -hmm. allow you as as the tester pen tester to emulate a full command and control architecture so you could emulate not just the exploitation of the box but also the command and control channel and whether or not you could get out to to do the uh, persistence to to have command and control to you know get the whole enchilada and not just the one box. Okay. But it wasn't that long thereafter. In 2016, it was observed to be in use by threat actors. <laughs> oops. <laughs> yeah, a little oops. A lot of this information came from this great report that Proofpoint did on Cobalt Strike and its escalating use by threat actors. Uh, really provided me a roadmap to all the stuff that I found for this episode. I wanted to do an episode on Cobalt Strike because of a threat report I read pretty recently. And then one, this was one of the first results. And I was like, oh, this is going to be so much easier. Because <laughs> I honestly knew, thought that, it, that trying to track every single incident, trying to create my own timeline was going to be a lot of work. And it turns out they did that for me. Nice, nice. Yeah. yeah. So props to Proofpoint. They did some really good work there and we really appreciate it. Um, I went 
out on some of the things that they that they did make it into their report. But you know, props to them. They did they did some really good work there, and it's worth re- reading because I don't go through every inch of what they go over either. This is the truth for a lot of our episodes. There's just a lot to go over. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of information on the internet. Go figure. Especially about IT stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so Proofpoint starts their timeline of Cobalt Strike with the detection of FinSet of the uh, attacker, the threat actor Fin7 using it in January 2016. I wasn't able to find any reference to any attacker earlier than that. So I'm willing to, to go and say that was either the earliest or the earliest one that had any like magnitude enough to get detected by, by a major threat intel vendor. Okay. Fin7 is actually a pretty big act, actor, has been active for, for a long time now. The threats have been attributed to the group going back to about 2013, uh, beginning with some banking Trojans, uh, Carbrep and Anuk, um, attacking financial institutions. It's a little comp- complicated because there's different campaigns, different kind of vectors of, of, of their cybercrime mm-hmm. empire have been attributed using different names. There's a little debate from the sources that I was reading about how tightly associated they are, but there's enough association where I'm going to say the whole ecosystem of Fin7 probably goes back to about 2013. Oh, okay. The specific actor that used Cobalt Strike that particular effort goes back to about 2015 from what I've been able to read. Hmm. So talking about Fin7 generally, Dimitri Chlorine of Gemini Adversary, he um, was interviewed for an article in Wired in 2018, said about Fin7, they definitely have a mastermind. They have managers, they have money launderers, they have software developers, they have software testers. And let's not forget they have the financial means to stay hidden. They make at least 50 million every month in 2018, 50 million every month. And uh, given the, the, that they've been in business for many years, many years, they probably have at least a billion dollars on hand. Really? Damn. Yeah. Yeah. The article in Wired was something like the, I, I would have to look at the exact headline, but it's like the billion dollar cybercrime empire. You know, you see that billion with a B and, and you take notice. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus. Uh, one of the things that was actually really kind of interesting about is that it wasn't specifically related to the Cobalt Strike stuff, but one of the behaviors that that has been attributed to Fin7 is them using names disclosed in SEC, in public SEC filings as targeting criteria for phishing. Really? Yeah. So like company officers and stuff that have to you know be in those documents and have to file those documents, they ended up being targeted by Fin7. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in 2016, they had an effort called Carabank, and that targeted financial institutions around the world, and it used Cobalt Strike in its execution chain, probably based on the reading that I did as the reverse shell mechanism. But you know, Fin7's been has been really active. There's lots of campaigns that are attributed to them. And uh, the Department of Justice actually has has filed several things about them. Um there has been tens of millions of compromised debit and credit cards attributed to them and over $3 billion worth of damages hmm. to the point where they identified three people. And in 2013, they're all Ukrainian nationals. They were arrested and extradited to the U.S. from indictments uh, in the Seattle circuit, U.S. Circuit, circuit Court. Uh, Fedor Heladar in Dresden, Germany in January and also in, in January 
Dmitro Fedorov in uh, Beliskobala, Poland. And then a little bit later that year, uh, Andrei Klopakov uh, in Lepe, Spain in uh, June of that year. Okay. In the indictment, they were talking about the fact that Fin7 was, had a front company that was headquartered in Russia and Israel. Uh, the company's name was Combi Security, uh, which was run as a front for the Fin7 group. In September of 2019, Haldiar pled guilty to uh, committing wire, wire fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit computer hacking, and he was sentenced in April 2021. Companies that have publicly disclosed hacks attributable to Fin7 include, this is the list that was in the DOJ document, Mm -hmm. Chipotle, Chili's, Arby's, Red Robin, and Jason's Deli. That's the only one that I'm not personally familiar with. Jason's Deli? I think I've gone to them maybe once. Yeah. So like national chain, um, a lot of the stuff that, that was written about them was that they specifically went after places that did point of sale scanning mm. of credentials. So they actually had, from my reading, two major lines of business. One was hacking places that had point of sale devices, hospitality, industry, food service, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, other retail stuff. And then had another business of directly doing banking fraud stuff. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about it. And honestly, we should do an episode about the various technical and social engineering stuff done to get direct bank transfers done to extract money more directly right out of companies. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a really like, fascinating episode to go over. We know that that's been a pretty major thing. It's probably the reason why we've seen more and more two-factor authentication, mm-hmm. um, especially for, for larger financial transactions. But it's going to be worth reading about because I because uh, I'm going to say that I've always had the impression that they were they probably didn't go to two factor authentication soon enough considering the amounts of money involved. Right. But like that's going to be a thing of research. It may just be that the folks that were hit were less likely to use it. But I also know of reports of social engineering stuff. Uh, the, the funny thing about that one was they did voice emulation of the chief financial officer to vocally authorize a transfer. Uh, by the person who had the two-factor thing. Really? That wasn't Fin7, but it was a real report that was done. I'll, Interesting. I, when we do the full episode, uh, I'll have to dig it up. Yeah, that's like some Mission Impossible stuff. Yeah, but the thing is, like, it's worth doing the Mission Impossible stuff. A, because the barrier to entry nowadays isn't as high as it used to be. Right. But B, you're talking about potentially millions of dollars in a single transfer. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I know that I recall reports of multi-million dollar and sometimes tens of millions of dollars transferred and lost this way. Mm. So that was part of the business that we were doing in seven. And again, uh, I don't have any uh, information on specifically the red set, uh, fin seven banking attack stuff. Uh, so I'm not specifically talking about fin seven, but that was the business that they were in and they may very well have pulled that kind of thing off, given the amount of money that they, that that expert uh, uh, Dimitri Chlorine was saying had been attributed to them. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So the question becomes, we got all these super super smart hackers, and we know that they're these cybercrime syndicates that are pretty large. We know that it's been used by government-sponsored APTs. Why would they use Cobalt Strike? Mm. Well, it's really feature-rich. They could do a ton with it. It's very flexible. And the other side of it is that you can set up a command and control system that has obfuscation. Um, that can be packaged and encoded different ways. You can get session-based memory resident control. You have systems that are built to obfuscate your traffic 
your outbound traffic so that it's not so that it's not obvious. And you can do all of this with somebody who doesn't actually have a deep experience in building command and control. You get a full range of features, but you don't have to dedicate your all this development effort to making something bespoke. Yeah. And in fact, we know from some of the other analysis that we've done that there's code reuse in a, in a lot of these stages of execution for a lot of these actors. We know that it's expensive enough where they don't redo it every time because they're not going to unless the threats make it so that they have to. Yeah, it's like, why, why, why reinvent the wheel Like if there's already something out there? Exactly. And the thing about this is this is supposed to be attacker emulation, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just that it has some tricks that are effective. It has all the tricks so you can test all of them against your defenses, right? Yeah, yeah. That also means for the attacker, they can pick and mix whatever techniques that they want. Yeah, and yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so kind of the core of the proof point re- report, which was really cool, was is that the number of threat actors, the number of threats that they saw started really low in, in 2016 and it had a slight incline going into 2017 and then it went up at like a 45 degree angle. More and more threat actors are appear, or at least more and more threats are being seen to use Cobalt Strike. And I'm going to come to the conclusion that it's a wider variety of folks because they said that um, they were able to identify about two thirds of campaigns for the time period from 2016 through 2018. But after that, the ratio decreased dramatically in the following years. Between 2019 and the present, just 15% of Cobalt Strike campaigns were attributable to known threat actors. Mm, okay. So that's not just previously known, but like their corpus of known threat actors, they're not able to attribute the, co- the Cobalt Strike stuff to. Right. At nearly, in fact, the rate is quartered mm-hmm. because it was two thirds to 15%. So about 65% to about 15%. Mm. So that's like, that's a huge change. So we saw that upswing. And um, another interesting, another really interesting finding in that report was the earliest Cobalt Strike campaigns, and this is a quote from the report, the earliest Cobalt Strike campaigns distributed email threats with a malicious doc with malicious document attachments to distribute malware. But campaigns distributing malicious URLs directly in the email body have overtaken attachments as the more frequently u- utilized threat type. And I mean, that, that makes sense because most often either attachments are just like not allowed period yeah or everyone's kind of had gotten training that like hey don't download attachments don't click on like this sort of thing yeah it's interesting to me because i i know that software as a service email security providers do do sanitization of links they'll basically strip the link out and make a link to their reverse proxy mechanism Mm -hmm. and that way you get the link but when you click on the link you go to their infrastructure and their infrastructure can create a a a layer a layer of abstraction and a layer of security between the link you clicked and the actual endpoint. Right, right. And this is a bit of a digression, but I was dealing. We were dealing with uh, seeing some emotet a couple of years ago or so. I think it was two two and a half years ago, something like that. And we would have been boned in our analysis if we hadn't had um, Zeek installed with the SMTP URL add-on. Oh, okay. Because that add-on stripped out the URLs from all email seen mm-hmm. in the observation. And we were able to combine the IOCs that we got to get kind of a pattern, which basically started by, by making a fairly general regular expression. And we ran it against the URLs that we had captured. Right. And we were able to kind of create a corpus of Emotet URLs. Oh. And we were able to, to, to spin it down to the point where, at least for that campaign, we had a pretty solid way to identify Emotet 
by their pattern of um of use. Interesting. Okay. I mean, and that was really powerful. We it was really cool that we were able to do that. Me and another analyst worked together on it. He did a lot of the foundational work. I helped him tweak the regex. So I'm not going to claim too much credit, (laughs) but, but like we did some really cool stuff. There was able, we were able to actually add some, some real strength to our defenses there, although it wasn't the easiest thing to do, but brings me to my point that in order for us to get that Intel to, to have the historical recording of all of those URLs, we actually had to go not just to have, Zeke, bro, in place in order to 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 pull that information out in our traffic flow. But we, in addition to that, needed to have an add-on for it that allowed us to get the URLs. Mm, okay. So, like that level of visibility is not common. Yeah. And nowadays, I can tell you because we've tried to apply similar techniques a little bit later on, and we found that it was more and more difficult for us to do that the way we had it implemented because it's become more and more common for SMTPS to be used. So the mail transit is encrypted. So you would need to go through the same effort you do with your web traffic to observe it and, and apply IDS to it or IPS to it uh, as you do for, for your web traffic to your, to your uh, mail service traffic at this point in time. Mm, okay. You have to create an environment where you can see that traffic decrypted. It's a little bit easier with a mail server because you can have your mail bridgehead out in the world, and then you can and then you can observe it. You could decrypt it and observe it inside, like between that mail bridgehead and maybe your Exchange server or whatever your 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 mail hub is. Right. And the uh, the header information will let you will let you see the server that sent it to your bridgehead. So it's a little bit easier than just doing SSL intercept because that doesn't require you having to do any techniques for decrypting. Mm-hmm. But if that's not built into your infrastructure's mail flow it could be really hard to get that information. Right, right, yeah. So um, to the point of about the use of Crowell Strike is that to effectively deal with those links in the email is actually harder because we're pretty good at killing files across the network. In fact, you have things like FireEye and other uh, sandboxing systems that do a lot of file scrutiny even when you're not blocking them. And links that are included in email aren't, aren't subject to as universal a coverage. Um, I think a lot of vendors are, are working in that direction. Don't get me wrong. In fact, I have enough experience with Proofpoint to know that that's part of their service offering. And I'll give them the shout out because they did report, they did do this report. Right. But it's harder to cover that than it is necessarily files hmm. at this point, given the tools that we currently have. Interesting. And digression. <laughs> anyway, so the next question is, how do they get Cobalt Strike? Well, you can get the trial from the website and you can get a per user license at about $3,500 per user per year, I believe it was. But in March, 2020, there was a report report of a cracked version of Cobalt Strike 4 available for $45,000. Oh, really? Yeah. I checked the tweet and the tweet is from a suspended uh, Twitter account. So I couldn't check the original tweet or anything. But as it turns out, Tail end of October, very beginning of November 2020, the source code for Cobalt Strike 4 was leaked on a, in GitHub. Hmm, okay. The license check in that code was disabled. And Advanced Intel's Vitaly Kermetz, uh, who examined the source code, told Bleeping Computer that he believes that the Java code was manually decompiled. So my hypothesis is that this is related to the cracked version that they were talking about 
earlier. Uh, we do know that the GitHub had been forked over 100 times, like 140 times at the time of that reporting, which was only about a week and a half, two weeks later. Right. So it wasn't necessarily the root of everything, but it's probably in the lineage. So cracked version. But the interesting thing is, at least in the graph that, that Proofpoint provided, there isn't a big change in the graph from that co source code becoming available. Now, this might be because the Proofpoint report came out in January, and this happened in tail end of October, early November. It hadn't gotten operationalized. Maybe they didn't have the data available. I don't know what the last date of their data set was. But we hadn't seen the impact yet as of the publication of their report. Hmm, okay. So I'm going to give you two or three greatest hits uh, that we've seen Cobalt Strike in, but it's been pretty, pretty prolific. I remember seeing it. It feels like every other threat that I see come across my desk that requires some attention seems to have some component of probably Cobalt Strike Beacon involved, but <laughs> that's probably an exaggeration, but it's, it, it's multiple times a year that I'm seeing stuff related to Cobalt Strike mm. or threat reports related to Cobalt Strike. So one of these was... Um, the TA80 Crimeware group uh, was part of their Baza Loda uh, execution chain in April 2020. Shortly thereafter, they had uh, uh, Nimza Loader, which was also attributed to the TA800 Crimeware group, which also employed Cobalt Strike Beacon. Um, there was a phishing attack at the US Department of State using Windows shortcuts to deliver Cobalt Strike Beacon that's attributed to APT29 which you may recall as Cozy Bear, um, in November 2018. And uh, the third one I have on kind of the greatest hits list was the sunburst attack, the solar winds incident. That employed uh, Cobalt Strike in its execution chain as well. Mm, okay. And that was roughly attributed to Russian intelligence. I think we talked a little bit about that in a previous episode. It's, it sounds vaguely familiar, yeah. Um, I think that I talked about it a little bit in the R Evil episode uh, when we were talking about supply chain stuff. Anyway, so there are a few conclusions. Some of them are mine and some of them are, are, are from the Proofpoint report. Uh, one of the ones from the Proofpoint report is using publicly available tooling aligns with a broader trend observed by Proofpoint. Threat actors are using as many legitimate tools as possible and including executing Windows processes like PowerShell and Windows Management Instrumentation, WMI, and injecting code into legitimate binaries. Cobalt Strike is not the only red team tool appearing. More often, Proofpoint data, others include Mythic, Meterpreter, and Veil Framework. Oh. So while I think when we were originally really spinning up the cybersecurity in industry, when it was becoming something that employed more and more people, people things that people were studying specifically to work in cybersecurity. We were in a world where we were probably taking people out of the potential pool of people that might have done cybercrime. We're taking them out of that pool by giving them legitimate work. Right. I think that it's time for the, to pay the piper in the other direction because now the tools that we use for the business of cybersecurity, the industry of cybersecurity are being used by threat actors. Mm, right. We also know that one of the things that they're using in kind of the same vein is generally allowable services like Dropbox, AWS S3, Google Drive, Office 365. I've seen several of those either as places that had the malicious link in them or uh, sometimes being used in various points of the command and control execution chain. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because, I mean, 
why set up your own thing when you can use more repeatable uh, source to do it? And if you're using AWS or Dropbox or something, like yeah. no one's going to go to Amazon and be like, hey, some hackers using your services, you got to shut down. They're going to be like, yeah. no. To a lot of those cloud services credit, they're good at policing this stuff once it's reported. Mm -hmm. But the kind of fast in, fast out that we're seeing and how easy it is to scale the endpoints on a lot of those services, you're playing whack-a-mole up until you have a pattern. Yeah, 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 exactly. And like you said, you can't block them in most cases. Even the ones that you can get your professional services for, or professional enterprise software as a service uh, arrangement, it can be very difficult to, or take a lot of work to set it up so that you're only allowing access to your tenant environment rather than all of you know, Amazon S3. Yeah. I mean, just pulling one of them. But I mean, that's true for all of them is that it it takes a non-trivial amount of work to be able to filter it from all of that service to just our part of that service. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Due to the flexibility of the framework of Cobalt Strike, and this that's the one I look at, but, but we do know that Cobalt Strike isn't easy to detect as just Cobalt Strike. There's a few snort signatures if you look in, in kind of the snort signature base that specifically detect like Metasploit and Metaferter. Metasploit command and control. And you can obfuscate that, but if you just use the, the straight out of the box thing, you, you can get detected that way. But Cobalt Strike doesn't really have a signature where you say, yep, that's Cobalt Strike. We're just going to stop Cobalt Strike on our network, period. But on the other side, because they're using essentially the same toolkit, it's hard to say based on that part of the execution chain to attribute it to a particular actor. Right. Less of the execution chain, less of the behaviors are specifically attributable and only generally attributable. Like it allows you to stop things, but it doesn't allow you to attribute to a single attacker. It doesn't it may be harder to discern whether you're being attacked by multiple actors or just one mm -hmm. if you're on the endpoint side, or whether or not it's one actor that's doing several campaigns as opposed to multiple different threat actors. Now you're going to see some 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 um, some TTP tools, techniques, and procedures that are going to be different from them. But like the more we use existing legit tools, the less that's going to be easy to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's Cobalt Strike, probably coming to a malware infection near you sometime soon. <laughs> so have you got have you dealt with? Uh, I mean, I know you work mostly on the infrastructure and compliance side, but have you had to deal? very much with the, with any of the command and control stuff? Not really. Um, I'm sure like some people have uh, run into that, like on the, the Nest side. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like we have, because we're so deep down into things mm -hmm. that like a lot of this stuff just like doesn't hit us ever. And most of my work in the last few years has been at the same place. And because of the things that we're able to do and some of the strictness of our, of the controls that we have, I haven't had some hands-on experience with a lot of things. And some of that is kind of this advanced command and control. Either we haven't been hit with it and our controls are working or somebody's got us so good that I got no idea and neither does anybody else where I'm at. Yeah. And that's always the uncertainty when you're doing this stuff. You can make some assumptions based on the odds and you can triangulate based on diverse tool sets to say, okay, I'm pretty sure that we're good because 
all the folks that say we'll find all of the bad things on your network that aren't associated with one another aren't finding any of the things. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to find that nothing is happening. Yes. That being said, uh, I don't believe in super hacking. I don't believe that there is universally undiscoverable technique that goes on for eternal periods of time. With enough investment, the high-level actors can stay ahead and it can be very hard to corral them, but that doesn't mean you'll never find ever any evidence that they're there if you are looking appropriately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, going back to the last episode where we are talking about IP, and we didn't actually talk very much about this. We'll, we'll, maybe we'll get to it in, an, in, an, in another one, that um, a very effective obfuscation technique for our Oh, for a while, I uh, actually haven't heard any, I haven't seen anything on it recently, is uh, tunneling IPv4 over IPv6 or vice versa, IPv6 over IPv4. If you're tunneling IPv6 over IPv4, like using um, Microsoft's Teradot protocol or some other means, what happens is because the first thing that that most intrusion detection systems sees is the IPv6 header. Mm -hmm. You basically skip past a lot of signature detection mechanisms on your way out and a lot of other controls uh, like uh, like your firewall controls. If you're allowing Terado out, you're, you, you're um, allowing folks to connect to basically any v6 destination on any port. Right. So that technique was pretty strong and it's not particularly easy to detect when it's not happening on a standard port. But if, for instance, you have a very structured boundary that, is, that only allows out a very limited number of protocols, it can be a lot harder to uh, get away with that and not show yourself on the network uh, with an uh, inordinate number of UDP blocks because Teradot's UDP. Right. Uh, anyway, down in the weeds, maybe something we'll talk about later when when I've had time to to make sure I have all of the research in a row and not just go from memory. <laughs> Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs One on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.